Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals to state senators to mayors to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities need it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Today, I talk with Massachusetts Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll. Upon her swearing in, she broke new ground. She, along with Governor Mara Healey, is part of the first all-women executive team to lead Massachusetts in its long history. Kim is a veteran New Dealer. She served more than a decade as the mayor of Salem where she led a turnaround to the city's finances and passed several groundbreaking measures to increase inclusion and the rights for the LGBTQ and immigrant members of her community. We talk about all that and how she's taking that experience to the local level to inform housing policy and economic development at the state. Enjoy! Massachusetts Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll, welcome to An Honorable Profession. It is wonderful to be speaking with you today. Great to be here. We're going to start with maybe a non-traditional approach, but I think it is basketball season. The women's Final Four tournament is happening as we record this over this weekend coming up. You were a college standout basketball star. Tell me your thoughts on where you've seen the women's game progress and what you're excited about this weekend. You know, Governor Healy and I both played hoops in college. So let me just say we are big fans. We're leaning into the teamwork theme. I think we're both rooting for South Carolina and really excited to see just the level of interest in women's hoops. Our former governor is now heading up the NCAA. I get a text from him every once in a while, like, did you see this shot? Did you see this play? I think there's a lot of excitement around the game, and I think it's terrific. Fantastic. What position did you play? I played guard. Yeah, point guard mostly, but, you know, shooting guard, that sort of place. Let's shift now to your exciting new position as lieutenant governor, which is both in a critical position of power and at a critical moment, but also historic. You and Governor Healy are the first all-women executive team to lead Massachusetts. Can you talk to me a little bit about what it's like to break that glass ceiling? You know, I feel really fortunate to be partnered up with a governor who really was a rock star attorney general and has just come in in this role and really seen an opportunity to build a strong team around her as as this new role started and feel fortunate that she's the type of leader that wants people who can take some of the problems and tackle some of the challenges. And this role of lieutenant governor, if you're not really having a strong partner in the governor's office that, that wants to work in collaboration, it would not be as fulfilling. So I feel a lot of gratitude about the work we're doing, the opportunity to do it together. There's something special. Ryan, you've been a mayor, so you know it can be lonely in City Hall when you're by yourself. And so this role partnered up with a governor who really welcomes the help, the assistance, the shared leadership, and modeling that with other cabinet members, it's phenomenal. I feel really fortunate and really grateful to be in this space and to be doing this work with with such terrific people. Well, we're excited to have you there. 
Every state's a little different in the role of the lieutenant governor. Can you talk about the role of lieutenant governor in Massachusetts, both sort of formal and informal in how you help move policy in your state? Sure. It's definitely something that I learned in some of the meetings we've had already that there are, in some states, different parties are teamed up. So you might have a Democratic governor, a Republican lieutenant governor. Some of the lieutenant governors take on other tasks, uh, constitutional office positions. Some folks run as a team from day one. Here in Mass, it's a little bit of a, a shotgun marriage. You're partnered up after the primary, and then you run as a team on the same ticket, the same party ticket. And in our case, the lieutenant governor has some official duties, chairing the governor's council, which is responsible for appointing, making judicial appointments, working as part of what's called the local government advisory council. So that's working directly with cities and towns, things like the seaport council. So special assignments, Uh, but you don't have any official duties, so to speak, tied to other constitutional offices, which also means you can be a little bit more of a free agent. It certainly has freed me up to work on housing and take on some of the key policy and policy and other needs that our Commonwealth might have. Other duties is assigned, as I like to say. <laughs> that other duties is assigned can, uh, can certainly keep you busy. Can you talk a little bit about how the state is doing and what your priorities are over the next term? Yeah, you know, Massachusetts has weathered the COVID pandemic fairly well from an economic perspective. And I think we're in this place right now, Ryan, where we're not quite going to be able to go back and do everything the way we did things before the pandemic, whether it's the way people go to work, the way people think about industries and what's emerging. But we're not quite understanding exactly how everything's going to shake out. So it's a bit of a transition period. Some of the opportunities we have, the strengths in the Commonwealth tied to things like life sciences, infotech. It's a high college degree state in terms of the people who live here. So healthcare, higher ed, big parts of our economy, as well as, you know, impressive work that, you know, produces life-saving vaccines. In that same vein, though, we're also seeing some challenges. We can be a high-cost state tied to the high cost of housing and childcare. We know that there are barriers around transportation and access when you're talking about historic cities and infrastructure that's not always built for modern-day usage. We're trying to focus on how to leverage our assets and address some of the challenges we have, and particularly around affordability. So many people, I think across the country, but when you think about big metropolitan places, we're just seeing housing driving so many needs within cities that are far away from Boston too. So no matter where you live, housing is playing a, a key driver in your affordability and you know, keeping people's, a roof over people's heads is really important. So we're focused on housing, trying to better understand how we can address affordability for families, things like early childcare, making those investments in public higher ed and trying to make sure Massachusetts remains competitive in terms of the work that other states are doing. We've had so much success in areas like life sciences, offshore wind, emerging technologies, but it's not a playbook that others don't have. And so it'll be important for us to lengthen our lead in areas where we think we're doing good and and partner in a way that can ensure long-term, more equitable prosperity as we move forward. I want to talk about housing because um, this is a place where states are really trying to drive increased affordability and some density in order to get there. But many of the rules and regulations live at the local level. As a mayor, a former mayor of Salem, and now as lieutenant governor, you've sat in both seats and looked at this crisis from all sides. What do you see both as your role in facilitating good policy, but also where are the challenges and opportunities? 
You know, we're really focused on in a couple of different areas. And as a mayor, I am a pro-growth mayor, right? So I championed new housing in, in Salem, a nearly 400-year-old city. We knew that we needed additional housing to meet our own demands, let alone anybody who might be moving into the community. And I've got the scars on my back from that experience. You know, as a mayor, when you're trying to take a position that's strong pro-growth in areas that you know your community needs, it can also be hard, like any other place, when you're trying to exact change. So I think that gives me some good perspective on how in this state role, I can work, you know, not at cross purposes with communities, but really as a strategic partner. So one of the first things that we've moved forward is a new housing secretariat, creating a cabinet for housing and livable communities. And this will enable us to really devote resources that right now are split between housing and economic development to solely focus on housing. How do we accelerate the growth of housing in our Commonwealth? How do we break down the barriers to it? And how do we work in partnership with communities? You are correct. I've got 351 cities and towns in Massachusetts. They all have unique neighborhood characteristics and challenges. And we need them all to be thinking about how to meet their housing needs and our collective housing needs as a Commonwealth. It can be a real obstacle having 351 zoning processes and different ordinances and different approaches to developing housing. We've recently had a, adopted here legislation that would require multifamily zoning in communities that are served by our transit system, our MBTA. That was adopted in the last session, and now we're, we're charged with implementing that. And I think local communities, myself included when I was a local leader, like really appreciate having local autonomy. I know what's best for my community. Help me get there. But if everybody is saying no to housing, that collectively creates a really tough ecosystem in the Commonwealth. And so this housing choice statewide legislation was, a, a frankly, a game changer. It was the first time, you know, the state has sort of come in and maybe big-footed the local zoning to address a common need across our Commonwealth. So implementing that means we're going to have to partner with communities to make sure they have the technical capacity on the ground in terms of planning tools. Sometimes the need for infrastructure is what's holding up housing. Sometimes it's about wastewater systems and things that are traffic, things that are impacted by new growth. So how do we address those needs in partnership with our cities and towns? And sometimes it's just nimbyism, as you can imagine, Ryan, with people who are resistant to change. And we need to work through that with our community leaders. And we think having this housing secretariat and the housing innovation personnel and real municipal connectors can help. So that's one space we're looking at. The other is leveraging public land. You know, so much of the high cost of housing in Massachusetts and perhaps in other places as well just the dirt is so expensive, right? The lot is so expensive. So when you factor in high prices for land, local zoning, that can be a barrier. It can be really lumber is expensive. Labor is expensive. Interest rates are up. We know what those obstacles are. If we can make the land cheaper, we hope that's one way that we're not only producing housing, but we're producing more affordable housing. And I think that is just, you know, we need housing at all levels, to be clear. Market rate, housing for our very vulnerable population, supportive housing, with wraparound services, but we've got a big missing middle. People that live in our communities that we rely on every day, anyone who hands you anything over a counter, the person that you're dropping off, maybe a child or is helping take care of an older adult, anyone who's pouring beer or coffee in your favorite establishment, we need those people living in our communities too. And unfortunately, so many of the places that used to be affordable no longer are. So we're hoping that we can leverage land in a way that can reduce one key cost factor and help us produce more of the housing that communities need. 
along with that technical assistance for smart growth zoning to help shape new housing production in communities. And lastly, you know, the state doesn't build housing. In fact, cities don't build housing, right? <laughs> Developers build housing, some nonprofit, some for-profit. We've got to get those folks to the table and understand how we can work in partnership to produce a whole lot more housing than we are currently. So some of that is the power of convening that we think we can play at the state level role and move forward in a way that really puts housing on the map. You're going to see a full-on campaign, and that's certainly a role both Governor Healy and myself hope to play a major role in. We've got to break down the myths and make sure people understand what's at stake when we say no to housing in all of our communities. Hey, everyone. I just want to take a moment to recommend another great podcast. It's called Sidebar. It's discussions with state and national experts about protecting our most critical individual and civil rights. The co-hosts are two law school deans, Jackie Gardena and Mitch Winnick. For more information on Sidebar, go to sidebarmedia.org or wherever podcasts are found. Now, back to our conversation. 351 cities and towns is crazy. (laughs) That is a huge task just trying to get coordination and communication between all those entities and the state. But you were one of 351. Your career started on the city council and then mayor. Can you talk about what drew you to local government that caused you to dedicate your career to it? Those are definitely all colleagues. And I really love local government is truly my love language, Ryan. Like I think it's the branch of government we rely on the most. Educating our kids, keeping your neighborhood safe, investing in those places you make memories, whether it's a park or a city square, you know, really driving local economic activity and economic opportunities. That's the job and function of local government. And so I feel strongly that, you know, the role of the state is to help ensure our local governments are thriving. When we have strong and thriving communities, we have a strong and thriving Commonwealth. And how can we work in partnership with local leaders to bring that about? Some of that's, of course, investment. We are a large funder of schools and help ensure that we're thinking about economic activities as a a real symbiotic relationship, right? We can't have strong cities without the state doing its part as well. But it's also about policy initiatives, And where we see collective need from the lens of the Commonwealth, what's the community's role in helping meet that? So as someone who's been, feels very comfortable in city hall or town hall, has been in the shoes of local leaders, I started my municipal career as an intern and really gave me the bug for understanding like the value of local government. I was a city planner, so I I, I get like public hearings and on the ground and, you know, trying to build consensus to, to grow a place. And for me, that was my pathway to eventually being you know, a city solicitor and ultimately becoming mayor. That's one of the reasons I joke with the interns when I was in City Hall that you never know, you might become mayor. So pay attention. <laughs> yeah. As, and they should aspire to be mayor. It's best job around the opportunity to shape a community is, is unparalleled. And I want to talk a little bit about your efforts to serve your city. You took over in 2006. Salem was struggling economically and had a declining bond rating. And then you had to manage that city, not only from those challenges, but through the broader challenges of the recession and beyond. Can you talk a little bit about how you turned your city around and what kind of tough decisions had to be made to make that happen? You know, Ryan, one of the experiences I had when I was working in other cities, I worked in Salem as an intern and a planning assistant and worked in Beverly, a city next door. And I I worked for the city of Chelsea as they came out of receivership as their chief legal counsel. So I had a lot of different perches 
I consider myself, I still do like a student of municipal government. I love seeing how communities solve problems, where things are going awry, how they tackled it. And one of my takeaways was that when you get an aligned vision, when you can get local leaders, you know, state representatives, the business community, the nonprofit institutions together towards an aligned strategy, like good things can happen. I was fortunate to be in a city like Salem that I think had a good bones, like amazing place, nearly 400 years old, had this rich history, first millionaire in America hailed from Salem, Elias Haskett Derby, well-known history, some of it notorious. Uh, You know, we weren't so good to women in 1692. Some of it impressive in terms of the great age of sail and tiny clipper ships sailing around the world and bringing back immense wealth and wares to Salem, a small port. What I saw was getting people aligned to support our assets. Every community has things that make them unique and that they can leverage for economic prosperity. In our case, it was our waterfront. It was our history. It was tied to tourism and hospitality. We have these beautiful, impressive architectural gems that have left remained in place as part of a preservation strategy. And it made us unique. I think for many years, Salem was a community that decided it would try and copy whatever any other community was doing around us. So if uh, the next door community was going to work on business park development, that's what we were going to do. But we didn't really have highway access. We didn't have the space to accommodate that. Why would we do that? A community north of us on the water, well, they were focusing on outlets. So we were going to make our mall an outlet mall where, honestly, that wasn't a real draw for us. We're kind of hard to get to. And so when you started putting people around the room, key stakeholders, like I mentioned, the businesses, the the, the public sector nonprofits, we had the largest hospital, the largest college, a world-class museum. We get those folks around the table along with smart leaders in key areas in our community. You can get an aligned vision. And we started to focus on the things that we did well. We had water. How do we get cruise ships here? We have history and a story to tell. How do we lean into tourism? How do we think about bringing people to live downtown in those historic structures. It creates a wonderful environment for a walkable urban center. And that's when we started to really see the turn tide towards people wanting to make investments. And I think it's really important for local leaders to, you know, suss out what's not working, get people aligned. We didn't have downtown. I had, I had five downtown revitalization studies that I had, that had on the shelves when I walked in. I was like, this is nuts. People put them <laughs> together and then they don't read them or they don't implement. Like we need an action plan. What are we doing? Let's get all the property owners around the table, understand what their needs are. We started to see people work together. I'm not going to steal the tenant from down the street. Let's let's build a better ecosystem that attracts more tenants. Not just tourism, chachi shops, but like things that people need. And it really came together in a, in a meaningful way because we created an environment for investment. We listened to people and, and tried to break down barriers all aligned towards uh, supporting an economic development strategy that could work long term. It's not easy and it never syncs up exactly the way you want it to. But once we had that strategy, we could go to state partners and ask for investment of a new train station downtown or work with us on the reuse of the old court systems, court buildings that were in the heart of an area that we knew could be reinvested to work with us on brownfields of former leather factories that had been closed for decades because they had confidence and trust that we had the right people, we had a strategy, and we were putting skin in the game as well. I think that's so important to one, 
be really honest about what your strengths are and what they aren't, right? Like everyone, there's a temptation to try to be all things to all people all the time. And, you know, any organization fails when they lose their priority and focus. And, you know, having your city identify its resources and its competitive advantages and then bring the right people together and tell that story is so critical to to success. It's smart as so many communities are struggling with changes in the economy and changes in demographics and beyond, having those honest conversations. And then you're right, moving away from plans that sit on the shelf to action is so critical for success. One of the things you also did was really put an emphasis on inclusion and passing an LGBTQ non-discrimination ordinance, supporting immigrants' rights. Can you talk about how you saw that as an important priority for your city and why you chose to take stands on those issues? Yeah, Ryan, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I think, especially in this day and age where it feels like in many respects, sometimes we're going backwards. This was a really important value system that I think I hold. I'm a Navy brat. You know, I was born in Hawaii. My mom is from Trinidad. My dad was from Massachusetts, but we never really spent any great deal of time living there because we were always deployed. When you're a military family, you move around quite a bit. And I didn't come to Salem in Massachusetts until I went to college. And then I just fell in love with the place and stayed. And one of the things I really appreciated about Salem is that even though I didn't grow up there, this nearly 400-year-old city, you know, very historic, very diverse, I felt like I was at home. You know, I felt like it was finally a hometown, <laughs> that I had a hometown as opposed to just this place that I, you know, that I landed upon. And I think that was really about the people who were there. And in many respects, Salem is this place that welcomed immigrants, waves of immigrants throughout decades. We had neighborhoods that had Polish families and Italian families, and we have a large Latino family, a uh, Latino population in Salem now. We teach in 49 different languages in the schools. Like It's a, a microcosm of different cultures, different religions, people speaking different languages. I think it what makes it's what makes our community more livable. And it's one of the things that I think draws not only me, but lots of people to find a home in Salem, a place that even if they didn't grow up in, they feel like it's a place that they can spend the rest of their lives. And so that value system was not only important to me, but it was important to the community. I think people talk about it. The fact that we are diverse and have this historic past as important reasons why they want to be here. And I joked earlier that 1692, we weren't so good to women, which was true. It's a very notorious part of our history. And I think ever since that occurred, our community has been trying to find ways to make up for that. The people who were the victims of the Salem witch trials were the folks who were just different. They were the others. They were the outspoken women, the folks who didn't conform. And it feels like to me, our community ethos was like, the least we can do is ensure that we have a willingness to welcome all, a place that works for and welcomes all. And immigrants have been our strength, not our weakness. And new people coming into our community have been value adds, not deficits. That's where some of those policies came from, you know, having a fully LGBTQ inclusive non-discrimination ordinance and public accommodations meant that our trans community felt welcome. Being a sanctuary for peace community meant that our undocumented residents did not feel fair calling the police or going to school to accompany their kids. And well, that was important to me. It was important to our community. Oftentimes, we had to put these, these laws actually into action or had residents who said, like, is this really what we want to do? And every single time they were validated by our community. So it's important, part of our value, part of our culture, and something that I know will we'll continue. I still live in Salem, even though I'm not the mayor and 
it's just who we are. We want to be that place that works for and welcomes all. I love that. And I guess to wrap up, I mean, for people who see themselves as others or not represented in the system, you've broken ground and created a path, but what's your advice for women or other folks from other underrepresented communities to getting involved in government, to making sure their voices are heard and reflected in, in the policies at the, either the local level, state level, or federal level? You know, I think every resident should at one time or another serve on a board or commission, <laughs> get involved. We joke about our 351 cities and towns. We still have active you know, town meeting uh, here in Massachusetts, which means people are used to attending to and being part of their governance structure. And I think that's a really good way to get involved. I tell a lot of young women who are interested in government, particularly now since I'm in this role, please don't think that everything begins and ends at the state level. There's a lot of good work you can do within your own community, whether it's serving in a volunteer role, being engaged in a more formal role if you want to run for office, or work in municipal government. You and I both know the dedication that it takes of people in cities and towns doing the work that really matters. It gives you a window into the world. And as you said, if you care about a place, you can really shape its future. It's important for people to follow their passions and the beauty of municipal government. There's like a committee, a task force, a blue ribbon panel for just about anything that might be happening from conservation to building a new school. And there's a way that you can make sure you're spreading your talent in a way that's going to help, you know, your neighbors. And if you like that, right, if that's a piece of the puzzle that excites you, then you can really use that as a launch pad to take on more meaningful roles. But I hope people do think about public service as whether it's at any level, I'm a fan of local government, as you can tell, but at any level, as something that's really critical for the success of our, you know, our country, getting engaged, being part of solving problems. That's what we do in government most days. Most of I, if you ask me, what do you do as mayor? I solve problems. That's people are looking for us to do it and do it well. It's nonpartisan at the local level, which to me was always like a plus, right? There isn't a Democrat or Republican pothole. It's just a pothole. It's got to get fixed. And how are we going to make sure we're doing it efficiently, professionally, affordably? If you can get involved in a role like that and realize the benefit of public service, I think you make the world a better place. I couldn't agree more. The best political leadership in the world doesn't mean much unless you have citizens and the professional policy administrators in the cities or states being able to, to execute on it. And so figuring out how to be a part of that team is so critical. Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll, you've been a member of New Deal for a long time. We are so happy to see you in this new role and representing us out there. And we look forward to watching how you pull people together, how you address these big challenges of housing affordability, inclusiveness, and more. And we look forward to, to hearing more about your efforts in Massachusetts. Brian, I feel proud and grateful to be a member of New Deal. They've actually provided a lot of information, both camaraderie and networking, but really good information on the ground about ways you can tackle challenges in your community and hopefully now in my state. So thanks for having me on. Look forward to uh, seeing you soon. Uh, yeah, I hope to see you at the next New Deal gathering and beyond. Take care. Thank you. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. Thanks to the team at New Deal for producing this episode. We encourage you to bring honor to public service, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars are used in the making of this podcast.